wherever you're watching this, welcome to Explain International Theos with me, Samuel Nason. And uh, this is a section, one of the weekly programs here in Explain International, where we cover um, specific areas uh, in apologetics. Of course, Theos is looking specifically at the doctrine of God. And uh, in this last few weeks, and also in the next few weeks, we'll be looking at a defense of the deity of Jesus Christ, the blessed second person of the Trinity. Well, uh, in the last program, we actually discussed the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, and tried to establish whether or not the prodigal son actually demonstrated Jesus' self-understanding that he was, in fact, God. Um, and in fact, we, we did look at quite a few examples of that to come to the conclusion that, yes, indeed, uh, Jesus did consider himself God. And uh, when we start to unpack the parable of the prodigal son, that becomes pretty clear. And one of the common objections that uh, if you have engaged people who deny the deity of Christ, one of the common objections you will come across in the next slide would be uh, this one right here, that, um, that uh, where did Jesus say, I am God? Uh, or where did Jesus say, worship me? That's the next slide. Um, so where did Jesus say, I am God? Or where did Jesus say, worship me? This is one of the objections we'll come up against uh, when people, when you engage with people who deny the deity of Christ, especially among people who believe that God exists. And what I found remarkably strange, and like I said last week, just tackling this one objection alone, uh, would require a couple of videos at least just to demonstrate why uh, there's so many problems with just the question itself. Sometimes the questions in apologetics can be problematic. Uh, think about like asking someone, you know, when, when did you stop beating your wife? Or when did you stop mistreating your parents? When did you stop beating your kids? Um, and before someone asks that, the question assumes something. Uh, and, you know, when you try to answer that question, it, it can get a little bit uh, tricky because you don't necessarily agree with the premise behind that question. That is what it is with this particular question. So uh, when you talk about the deity of Christ and specifically Jesus claiming to be God or worshiping him, um, you really look at the Gospels and find no need for that uh, because Jesus was worshipped from the earliest times. And when I say earliest, I'm talking about his childhood. Jesus was worshipped as a child. In fact, in... Uh, Shabir Ali, one of the, the next slide, uh, we see Shabir Ali, uh, one of the proponents or, or opponents of the deity of Christ. Uh, in his book, Is Jesus God? The Bible says, no, I'm quoting from page 10. He says, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, authors of the first three gospels, believed that Jesus was not God. Uh, and he says, see Mark 10, 18, and Matthew 19:17. They believed that he was the son of God, in the sense of a righteous person. Now let's let's pause to think about that for a moment. Jesus was not God according to the Synoptic Gospels. Well, what I want to share with you this morning, this evening, depending on where you're watching from, uh, is that Jesus was worshipped as a child. Now this is not a disputed fact. Uh, this was very clear. I want to take a look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. That's the next slide. Well, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the Great, uh, 
wise man from the east. Now, that's the first one. That's the important one. Wise, wise man from the east came to Jerusalem, verse 2, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So a few things here to unpack. Number one uh, is the fact that Jesus uh, was born. This immediately takes place after the birth of Jesus. So Jesus is maybe not uh, the weeks or the months after Jesus, but it could be up to a year or maybe even a year and a half later that this event takes place. Uh, it's maybe at this period of time, Jesus is uh, Jesus and his mom, uh, Mary, and his dad, Joseph, are staying with a relative's house in Bethlehem. We don't know for sure, but this some months later, you have the, the during the reign of Herod the Great, and we know Herod the Great died when Jesus was a child. So Jesus is very, very young when this is taking place. Wise men from the East, you want to study who these wise men were? They came to Jerusalem and they are asking, where is he who has been born? King of the Jews. We saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. Let's go to the next slide. And we'll look at the three categories. Number one, who were the wise men from the east? Number two, why were they following his star? To, to cite the, the way that Matthew phrases it, his star when it rose. Uh, is there a reason for seeing that? Uh, and number three, why on earth would men be called wise for worshipping a baby? Now, there are lots of issues that are going on with this story that ought to be problematic in and of itself. Number one, why are astrologers involved? Because that's what the word magi kind of alludes to. Um, isn't that wrong? Isn't that kind of like witchcraft? Why are they now in the worship of Christ? What's going on here? So, uh, quite a few things to unpack, but the most important thing is to bear in mind that our focus in this presentation is to see the deity of Christ represented in the early pages of the Gospel of Matthew. Remember what Shabir Ali said, you, you don't see the deity of Christ uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, um, Dr. Shabir Ali goes to the extent of saying that you don't even see the deity of Christ even in the Gospel of John. Now, this is a position, like I said, that uh, it's, it's not one that mainstream scholars in the area even hold to, even skeptics of the deity of Christ, like Bart Ehrman, would go to the extent of saying, yeah, we, we, we accept that the deity of Christ is clearly taught in the Gospel of John, but not in the Synoptic Gospels. And even then, I should add, as I did last week, uh, that reading some of the blog articles of uh, Dr. Ehrman, he seems to have had some sort of a change of mind uh, as far as that is concerned. So anyway, uh, be that as it may, let's explore these three claims. Number one, who were the wise men from the East? Um, the Greek word magoi, meaning astrologers, uh, so the, the Greek word used to describe the wise men uh, were magoi, and they, they it, it simply meant astrologers, and it's a name given by the Babylonian Chaldeans. Uh, it's a name given by the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, the Medes, the Persians, and um, others to certain wise men, teachers, um, physicians, astrologers, seers, interpreters of dreams, uh, a whole bunch of people, basically. You get the idea that these men are soothsayers, sorcerers, etc. Uh, these men are called the wise men uh, or the magi. Magi, of course, is plural for magi in the Greek. Um, and uh, so th these people are 
uh, as I said, astrologers, and they come from the east. So let's take a look at a map of uh, the ancient Near East, and you'll find on underneath the, the red line, that's where Jerusalem is. And uh, directly east of Jerusalem is this region, Babylon, and further east you go, you find Persia further east as well. So uh, when it says the men who came from the east, some people are saying, is it China? Is it No, no, we, we have to look at east of what? Uh, not east of the United States, not east of Russia, not east of Europe, the United Kingdom, uh, not even east of Malaysia, uh, but rather the east of uh, re relative to the people of Israel. Directly to the east of them, you find a Babylon, uh, Babylon you directly to the east of that, you find Persia. This is the region from which the Magi would have come from. And uh, as we will see in just a minute, uh, by the way, whatever I've taken earlier was from Teus Greek, uh, Greek lexicon. Uh, what, when we talk about the region of Persia and Babylon, you're going to see in a minute why that is a very important point in establishing the identity of the Magi and why is it they came to worship uh, the baby Jesus. Now, bear in mind, as I said, we're using the word baby. Uh, we're not talking about Jesus in, you know, a day old or a couple of days old or even a week old, we, we, we're using the word baby with some st stretch here. Uh, you know, Jesus probably below two years old, about one, one and a half years old by this time. Now, why would they? So we've established who these wise men are. We've established that they are magi. They are, they're basically the magicians of the time. They are from, the, uh, from Persia or from Babylon, the astrologers. As I said earlier, this ought to lead all sorts of questions. Why is, how did these astrologers, who are supposed to be people doing things against God, uh, witchcraft and so forth, how do they come to the knowledge of Christ? That leads to the second question, which kind of touches on that, which is why follow his star when it arose? Uh, let's look at uh, Balaam's prophecy, kind of gives us an idea as to why that happened. When you look at Balaam's prophecy, let me just share for those of you wondering what Balaam is all about. Um, it's the story of the people of Israel in Numbers chapter 22 onwards, where the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt. God has, by a miraculous and powerful hand, brought the people out of Egypt, and uh, they begin to overcome one enemy after another. And naturally, the king of Moab, by the name of Balak, uh, gets really, really concerned, and rightly so, uh, because Israel is coming for him next. Uh, so what he does, um, because he clearly, together with the Midianites, don't want to allow any Israelite, uh, uh, well, I, wanted, I was trying to, I was trying to uh, use, not use the word occupation, but settlement, rather. He wanted to block any attempts of the Israelites to settle in that vicinity. So Balak here, decides that he, and by the way, this is to absolute credit of Balak. He recognizes that he cannot engage Israelites in a military battle because God is with them. If he's going to engage them, this is the genius of Balak. You've got to engage them spiritually because this is a spiritual battle. Well, how nice if those of us doing apologetics realize that. It's not a uh, necessarily a physical, intellectual issue. It's a spiritual issue. You know, there are people that are blinded to the truth. And when we do apologetics, we really are praying that God, through his Holy Spirit, will open up hearts to be able to hear the truth of the gospel. So 
Balak gets Balaam, who is a known soothsayer, um, an oracle sayer, you know, that, that kind of guy, the kind of guys that would be the Magi. Uh, and, and he gets him to come and say, well, we're going to pay you lots of money, curse the Israelites, because we know whoever you curse uh, will be cursed, and whoever you bless will be blessed. Now, Balaam uh, initially wants to go, uh, pretty excited about it, uh, and then he is told by God that he should not go with these people because they are God's people. So what Balaam does is he tells them he can't go, but stay over the night. We'll try and re renegotiate with God, hopefully uh, get a different ad <laughs> different advice from God uh, that he might be able to change the change the situation by morning. So he goes to God again, and God seems to have a change of mind, says that, well, you can go with them. And so the next day when he's going with them, uh, the, the, the messengers of the king to Balak, Balak to go and curse uh, the people of Israel. Um, well, he, he comes into a near-death experience where God nearly kills him uh, because he's still going to go ahead and curse the people of Israel. But he's let go with a warning that he should say whatever God wants him to say, uh, which would, in this case would be to bless the people of Israel. So that's the context here. Balak is the king of the um, of the Moabites, which is modern-day Jordan, and together with a few places. And so what the oracles of Balaam is going to affect not just the king of uh, Moab, but it's also going to affect the surrounding regions. Uh, for example, the Canaanites, uh, where, or, or, or even uh, in this case, the Amalekites were also going to be involved in uh, the oracles of Balak. Because the Amalekites, this is, this is where it's going to get really interesting. The Amalekites are actually, uh, scholars have identified uh, the Amalekites are actually possibly modern-day Iran, and that means Persia as well. So you do have a connection to the Persians uh, with this prophecy, because uh, uh, the Amalekites are mentioned in Numbers 24, right after uh, the passage that we're going to be looking at. What we're looking at is the final oracle of Balaam, and in this final oracle, Balaam is going to Instead of a curse, he's going to utter a blessing over the people of Israel. Very important to look at the blessing of Balaam and to see what it's talking about. So verse 16, it's the beginning of the final oracle. He says, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, that's an interesting phrase, and knows the knowledge of the Most High, uh, okay, knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty. What is the vision that Balaam is speaking about? What is the vision that Balaam is seeing? It's a vision, not of a man, but of the Almighty. That is key. So keep that in mind. And he says, falling down with his eyes uncovered, he's demonstrating his, 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 his reverence, for the vision that he's seeing, which is coming from God. The next slide uh, will tell us that verse 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And look at this phrase. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons. Of Sheth. There's a lot to unpack here. So, in while well, he's supposed to curse the Moabites, 
uh, well, he's supposed to curse Israel for the Moabites, for the Amalekites, for the people of the surrounding region. He's now blessing them. Not just is he blessing them. What he's doing rather is that he is actually saying that there is going to come a ruler, a king from Israel. But not now. He's seeing something prophetic of the future. A king from Israel is going to come. And this king's coming is like a star rising out of Israel. And he is going to, number one, crush the forehead of Moab, which is the enemies of Israel. He's going to destroy the enemies of Israel. And number two, he's going to break down all the sons of Sheth. Now, the scholars are a little bit confused as to, or in disagreement rather, of what, what the sons of Sheth are. Uh, but let me tell you what I suspect it is. I believe it's a reference to Seth, who is the son of Adam, uh, who's, who's only his line survives the flood, right? Noah is a descendant of Sheth, uh, and so only Sheth's line, Seth's line, survives the flood. And so, in other words, I think it's talking about all of humanity. He's the the, the one that uh, the, the the one that uh, ba Balaam is seeing about the Almighty that he's having this vision of which is coming out like a star from Israel, he is going to be the judge of the whole world. That's what he's saying. He's going to be breaking down all humanity, the sons of Seth, uh, and crushing the forehead of Moab, which is the enemies of the people of God. So that obviously doesn't go too well for Balak. He gets really, really upset with, uh, with, with, his, uh, with, with uh, this guy that he's invited, Balaam, and they go their separate ways at the end of this final oracle but it tells you something people in the region as far as the soothsayers and the magicians and the those who are paying close attention to the oracles go they already have a note to keep in mind which was declared before the king himself this was declared in the presence of the king so people are taking notes uh, assuming if they're pay, taking notes as to prophecies what they know especially because they have a high regard for Balaam is that watch out for someone who comes like a star because when he comes, he's going to bring judgment to the world. And especially destroying the enemies of the people of God. Now we leave the story of Balaam because now we get an idea why people are looking for a star. It's interesting that this passage would fit in into why is it the Magi's coming uh, is so closely related to the star. And also they say his star, uh, specifically identifying the star with Jesus. Why would they say it's his star? Because they identify him as the one, is the star, uh, the star who rises out of uh, Israel. So with that, we want to go to the next part, next section, which is the third question and the most important one. Why worship the baby Jesus as God? Why would, why would they do that? Uh, there are going to be three points that I point out here. And the first point is that now many years have passed after Balaam, the people of Israel settled down in their land, of the promised land, the land of Canaan. Uh, and they, after a long period of time, have kings, uh, some of them not so good kings, some of them good kings. Uh, you have the likes of, uh, you, 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 you have the, the, the likes of David, Solomon, and then you have some pretty bad kings that lead up to the division of Israel, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom falls into the hands of Assyria with its capital in Samaria. 
the southern kingdom uh, is now in the hands of, uh, well, uh, falls to Babylon with its capital in Jerusalem, which is completely uh, destroyed by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. So now the people of Israel have gone into exile. And that uh, in this period, Daniel is one of the nobles of Israel that has gone into exile. And he uh, is, uh, and he is now come. He is having visions. And whatever he's sharing, remember, he's sharing to the community which is directly east of Israel. This is where the land that the Magi came from. Babylon, Persia. Those were the two empires that Daniel served under. What is the vision of Daniel? Daniel chapter 2, verse 24. It says, And in, those, in, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will, uh, well, sorry, my, my uh, yeah. In, those in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, uh, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. What's going on here? Daniel is giving the king, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, a interpretation of the dream that the king himself had and the vision of that the king has has to do with a series of empires that come first the babylonian empire then the persian empire then the the greek empire and which is followed with the roman empire and during the reign of the roman empire god begins to establish his eternal kingdom which shall never be destroyed will not be left to another in fact this kingdom grows and in the high, it grows until eventually becomes this mountain filling the whole earth. Um, that prophecy, that vision demonstrates one thing, that the one to come, not by human hands, is a king. He is not just any king. There seems to be a king of divine origin here in that he is establishing God's kingdom on earth. Really interestingly, when Jesus begins, what's the first thing that Jesus says? even in the Gospel of Matthew. The kingdom of God has come. Jesus announces the arrival of God's kingdom, which begins in the heart of people, so that if you are listening to this, you're wondering what the kingdom of God is. It's the reign of God with Jesus himself as king. And the reign is in the hearts of men when we submit to the kingdom of God. We submit to Christ. Christ reigns in the heart of his people, knowing that one day when Christ returns, he will actually take his place as the physical king of the world. But till then, he reigns in the hearts of his people as his kingdom begins to grow through a dark world. Uh, that's, that's the idea here in Daniel 2.24. Amidst the world's empires, God begins to set up his kingdom, which is growing slowly, but it's an eternal one. But it demonstrates that the one to come is a king. And that's Jesus. That's why the word kingdom is there. So it establishes that Jesus is king. Uh, and number two... Go down to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. It's not just the next one. It's not just that the 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 it's it's not just that he's king, it's that he's divine. Look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. By the way, Daniel 2 and 7 are almost parallels. It's the identical vision uh, being spelt out in two different ways. In Daniel chapter 7, uh, this is what Daniel sees. The rock that is seen in Daniel chapter 2, in Daniel chapter 7. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, which is another word for God, 
and was presented before him. Uh, and so let's go to verse 14, next slide. Um, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall uh, The eternal kingdom is set up by Jesus, and what begins to take place is that Jesus reigns here. And he's seen here as one like the son of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, as God, because here he is he's sitting, uh, he's coming with the clouds, which is something that only God does, uh, only God does in the scriptures. You go through Exodus, you find that God rides the clouds when he comes with his people in the pillar of clouds. Uh, we talk about the day of atonement, Yahweh is there in the Shekinah cloud. Uh, so you, you, you have, you have uh, this, this, this idea that God is coming in the clouds. And here you have one that looks like a man, which is the one that Daniel is prophesying about. But he's coming in the clouds. And it's almost like an imposter. But instead of, and he's coming before the Ancient of Days, which is God himself. But instead of God judging him for trying to challenge him, God welcomes him, sit at, you know, reigning with God. God allows him to reign with him, uh, gives him a dominion and glory and a kingdom so that every tribe of people are beginning to serve him. Uh, almost in a service that is rendered to God alone, a.k.a. worship. Uh, so he's not just a king, he's a divine figure. And without spending too much time, the next thing that Daniel points out, in, which is in Daniel chapter 9, uh, go to the next slide, uh, is that this divine king is actually going to be killed. Uh, so it says that after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, which is Messiah, uh, shall be cut off and shall have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary so the messiah is killed and the temple is destroyed we know the temple was destroyed exactly 40 years after jesus's ministry in AD 70 that's if jesus ministry was in around AD 30 40 years later the temple is destroyed so you have a few things here that i want to just uh, keep in mind as we try to unravel the mystery of the Magi. Daniel demonstrates that Jesus is, the Messiah to come is going to be a king. He demonstrates that he's going to be a divine king. He's going to be God. And he also demonstrates that he's going to die. Why are these three facts important? Before I even say that, uh, let me establish two more things. And that is number one, why should the Magi take Daniel's words seriously? Assuming that the Magi's did, uh, in the New Testament, the Magi's of the New Testament who came there were taking, getting the idea from Daniel. That's where they got the idea from, who Jesus is and why they wanted to come. Why would they have taken Daniel's words seriously? The answer actually is in the book of Daniel itself. Daniel chapter 4, the next slide. Uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 8. It says that, and this is the words of Nebuchadnezzar. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, so Daniel's name is Belteshazzar, and in him, in, in him who is the spirit of the holy gods, I told him the dream, saying, uh, the next slide, verse 9, chapter 4, verse 9, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dreams, and I saw uh, that I saw and their interpretations. What does Nebuchadnezzar refer to Daniel as? 
not just Belteshazzar, which is a Babylonian pagan name, but it is chief of magicians. Remember the word magi is short for magicians. Uh, this, this, I mean, ma the, the, the word magicians is where it kind of derives its root from. So Daniel was the head of the magi in the east at one period of time. Now we're beginning to draw the connections. Daniel was the head of the Magi at one period of time in the East. And he begins to share with them through the prophecies that God gives to him, through the interpretation of dreams and visions, that this Messianic figure is coming, is going to be king, is going to be God, and he's going to die. Let's summarize all of this and see how that flows into the Magi in the New Testament. Uh, let's summarize this. Number one, the Magi from the East were from Babylon, the, the Babylonian Persian magicians. Number two, Balaam is warned, uh, or rather Balaam warns uh, Moab and Amalek of the rising star that they have to watch out for because that is going to signal judgment is coming. Number three, Daniel warned Babylon and Persia of a coming divine king who will die. Number four, Daniel happens to be the head of the Babylonian and Persian magicians. And number five, that leads to the Magi coming to worship the baby Jesus even before he reigned. So why did the Magi come to worship the baby? Well, they're called wise men for a reason. It was not that they were being especially generous and kind uh, in just wanting to give a welcome to earth gift to Jesus. No. On the contrary, they recognize as astrologers, as magicians who had followed the direction of scripture, which was given to them in the period of, in the time of the word of God that came to them through Balaam, the word of God that came to them through Daniel, following the scriptures, all they had was a little bit of scripture, mind you. They were able to take that little bit of scripture and arrive at the conclusion that this is where the Messiah is going to be, this is where the Messiah is going to be born, this is who the Messiah is. And they come to him for one reason and one reason alone, to make peace with the child, to demonstrate their subordination to him, that they're subjugated to him, and to say to him, you are our king. And we're going to, how do we establish that? We're going to look at the gifts that they bring. Um, and we're going to establish that. And what they're trying to do is this. Before he judges the world, before he starts reigning with that scepter and the rod of iron, we better make peace with this child. That is an important theological message that we need to take in mind. That's why they go to Herod. And in, in their logic, being wise men, they say, well, if he's a king, he's going to be born in a palace. Turns out he's not. And Herod is there confused now. If these guys are coming to worship the king, Herod is the king. Why not worship Herod? But no, they're not there to worship any king. They came to worship a divine king. The reason they came to worship him because they wanted to make peace with him. And that's perhaps the attitude that we should have to Jesus, to make peace with Christ before he reigns the world. That is the wise thing to do, and that is why the Bible actually encourages worship to the child 
Jesus Christ. So let me just read a few things just to wrap this up and uh, just close with uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 9 to 11. What do the wise men do? Uh, let me read it. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with uh, with uh, his mother, Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. These are royal envoys. These are wise men. They fall down to worship a baby. Now, what gifts do they give? They opening, they are then opening their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let me just quickly describe what, explain the gifts. Um, the gold symbolizes to me the kingship, the royalty that as a royal emissary, they're giving gold, almost like paying tribute to a great king. When a nation wants to surrender to a different nation, they present gifts to them. And so almost in a form of a royal uh, tribute, they're paying the gifts, except to a baby. Number two, they give him frankincense, which is incense is what uh, people in the East or different parts of the world use uh, as veneration or worship. To deity and they're demonstrating that Jesus is not just king Jesus is God as expressed in their attitude to him bowing down to worship a baby number three uh, they offer him myrrh which mostly is really strange to offer a child because myrrh is usually what you give uh, to the dead uh, it's used in embalming the dead why on earth are they giving the child myrrh they're doing so I believe because they are coming and taking the prophecy of Daniel seriously. They, if they understood the prophecy of Daniel, they knew this child is going to die. And of course, it's not clear when through the prophecy of Daniel. Uh, or some may argue, well, the, the, the dates in Daniel were pretty clear. Uh, but be that as it may, the point is that these wise men recognize that, that Jesus is king, recognize that he's God, recognize that he's going to die. And isn't that, isn't that interesting that Daniel was proclaiming the life that deity, and the, the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, long before Jesus was even born. Daniel was proclaiming the gospel almost 500 years before Jesus even came to the scene. And that tells us something, that God has faithfully revealed his word. And in his word, those who are confused about the deity of Christ can take refuge in knowing that God has made it very clear. You don't need Jesus to tell you uh, that I am God, worship me. Even the scriptures, the second page of the Gospel of Matthew shows you he's worshipped as a child. What more evidence do we need? Uh, and I think the only way really out of this is to be able to twist the scriptures, to make it look, no matter how clear it is, to make it look as if Jesus is not God because the scriptures are manifestly clear. The wise men worshipped him, and to today, let me say this in closing, wise men still do worship the risen Christ. All right, uh, back to uh, the Q&A session. Thank you for all of you that have been faithfully watching uh, with, uh, the, uh, with all the problems that we've, that the problems that we've been having. Uh, so let me, let me try and address some of the, uh, uh, some of the questions that we have uh, coming through the, the chat. So number one, thank you, Don, for your continuous support. Uh, Don says, uh, Don Fullman says that I've always wondered what religion the three magi were 
proportionally uh, seems that it couldn't have been Christianity. Yeah, they, it's, you're right. They, they were not Christians at all uh, because the, the term Christians come in later. But what they were, uh, were wise men who were, as we've discussed, following what scripture has said. Uh, so they may have been astrologers. They may have been uh, following different deities. But one thing they got right, and that is the scriptures point to the deity of Christ who will one day rule the world. Uh, and that's why they took him seriously enough uh, to come to him. Thank you, John Beasley is in the live chat. Uh, of course, John Beasley will be uh, presenting in a couple of days' time uh, on Friday night, uh, U.S. time and uh, Saturday morning for those of us in Malaysia on Old Testament conundrums. Uh, he will be discussing uh, the Messianic passage, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I believe. All right, Kelv. Uh, Quayo, uh, thank you for your comment. Uh, you said, uh, I'm still looking for the questions that come. Uh, really, really interesting comment. Uh, you said that, uh, interesting that the first to worship uh, him as a man is Gentiles. That is true. And the funny thing is that the Jews did know about it. Of course, the Jews could quickly point out that he was to be born in Bethlehem, but they did not have the wisdom of the Gentiles, which is to go follow their child, to seek him out and to worship him. Uh, kind of tells you the attitude of people uh, that had the truth to them. They did not take it seriously. Um, I've got to start helping orphans and widows more. Yep, that's uh, always a good thing to do. Uh, so, uh, all right. Uh, great. So, yep, Brit Farley, good to see you here as well. I'm trying to see if there is any other comments. Uh, thank you, Britt, and thank you, Don Fullman. Looks like we have no other comments. Guys, if you do have comments, feel free to drop them either in the live chat. If we still manage to, if I still manage to get them, I'll address them. If not, do put them in the comment section, uh, and uh, we will try to uh, address them even after the show. Uh, our team in Explain International will try to do that. So thank you all for watching, and once again, do apologize for the bad internet that we're having right here. We'll try and fix them as soon as we can. If you haven't already subscribed to Explain International, feel free to hit that red subscribe button below and hit the notification bell so that you're notified the next time we go live. And of course, as I said, every Fridays, you get to hear John Beasley on Old Testament conundrums. And every Monday night, uh, you, can, you can hear Dr. Stephen Boyce with his excellent show, Facts, uh, where he deals with... Uh, questions pertaining to scripture, canon, textual criticism, and the early church fathers. It's been a blast being with you guys. Uh, look forward to seeing you guys next time. Bye for now.